You would expect verse 20 to say, where sin increased, God's judgment increased all the more. But it's not his judgment which abounds, church. It's his grace. You're listening to a sermon series titled Romans, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. So who is the most important person in human history? Just a history lesson for you real quick this morning. You guys are a little quiet this morning, so we're going to have to participate. I need a little more energy this morning from you guys. Who is the most important person in all of human history? Just yell the name out. Okay, thank you, Jesus. Yes, hopefully, even not being a Christian this morning, you got that one. The pastor asked you who's important in history. You got, you got Jesus at least. Um, Sunday school answer, right? But here's a follow-up question. Who is the second most important person in human history? If you think about it for a minute, maybe you'd say Peter. Peter, the brave disciple who led the church in Jerusalem. Maybe you'd say, no, Paul the Apostle. He was critically important to all of human history. Maybe Abraham, maybe Moses. Well, here's a hint. It's not Bob Dylan. I know he had a birthday this week, but he did not make the cut. Okay? In all of human history, if we were to lump all of us together and have one singular representative who stood up and repped the entire human race. There is one who stands as our federal head, and that person is the second most important person in all of human history behind Jesus Christ, although it's a very far second, and that person is Adam. Now, as we continue our study in the book of Romans, today we come across a therefore in verse 12, which is not inserted by accident or in some peculiar way. This section that Dean just read is critically important to our study of the epistle of Romans because Paul takes the foundation that he's been laying. If you miss the rest of this study, you need to go back and just read Romans 1 through 5. And what he does here is he builds upon either deeper or higher in our understanding of who we are and what Christ has actually done for humanity, for us. And so in the verses preceding this section, we saw, I know it's been a few weeks removed, but we saw the extent of the love of God in Christ, that Christ died not merely for those who were good and deserving, but he died for the ungodly. And that means that those of us who are in Christ now have peace with God, we have access to grace, we have reconciliation, and in these things we greatly rejoice. But now, starting in verse 12, Paul begins to craft what almost seems to be a mathematical equation. So if you're into math, this is going to be one of those moments where you get kind of geeked out. Oh, this is kind of like math class. I love this. That's not me. Uh, I am not that guy. For me, the other idea is what John Stock calls a carefully constructed musical composition. So if you're not a math guy, you might be a music guy. I'm a music guy. And what we see here is that this, this concept is like a musical score or a math equation, and both of those have some things in common. The idea is that they employ precision and skill and balance. And I think what we're going to see in Paul's logic in these verses together is precision, skill, and balance. And yet, what we're going to see is that it really isn't balanced. It's not as if sin and condemnation are over here on one side 
And on the other side, grace and justification thankfully barely tip the balance and match them pound for pound and even the scales. No, we're going to see that what Christ has done has far, he's done far more than just undoing what was done at the fall. It's so much greater than that. So this section looks back at the salvific work of Christ and reminds us it's not by our works, but it's by the finished work of Christ. But it's also going to set the stage for the next section in Romans, beginning in chapter 6, where we understand who we are, and understanding who we are is a key in living a life of holiness and freedom from sin. So Paul takes the irreligious Gentile and the self-righteous Jew that we've been looking at and puts them back together in one universal category. And this shows us the truth of who we really are and what Christ has truly done. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. He says, The whole story of the human race can be summed up in terms of what has happened because of Adam. We know what happened because of Adam. We'll look at that in a moment. And what has happened and will yet happen because of Jesus Christ. That is all of human history. That is our story. And so in this section, we're going to see three little divisions together. If you're taking note, and I hope you are, three things. Number one, we're going to see the representatives in verses 12 and 14. We're going to see the reign in verses 15 and 17. And then we're going to see the result in verses 18 through 21. So let's begin with this first idea, the representatives. Look again at verse 12, big word, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. Who's that, everybody? Who's the one man? Adam. Yeah, you weren't sure about that. You'll, you'll be sure at the end. And death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Now, if you, if you follow Paul, his train of thought gets derailed here. He's beginning to say, hey, just as sin entered the world, but as often the case, he doesn't finish his train of thought till much later. So he actually starts a thought, and he doesn't end it until verse 18. So he takes a long kind of pause here in the middle. But what he's doing here is he's introducing two representatives, and the first is Adam. Now, I want you to jot this verse down later. If you don't know this in your Bibles, Genesis chapter 3 explains to us that sin entered the world when Adam partook of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God had commanded man not to eat of it. And just to settle this debate, it was not through Eve that sin entered the world. Okay, so wives, you're off the hook. No, it really was through Adam. The scripture tells us she was deceived when she ate. But Paul does not say here that sin entered the world when Eve took a bite, but through one man, Adam. When Adam disobeyed God and chose lawless treason and self-worship, when he did that, sin entered the world and permeated all facets of creation. Not only that, but Paul says here that death entered creation through sin. When sin entered the world, death came into the world, death entered creation, and death spread to all men because all sinned. We call this concept, this is known as the doctrine of original sin. Let me give you the definition on the screen. Original sin means all of mankind is joined to Adam in both the guilt and corruption of his first sin. So that means that you and I are without excuse. We can't just lean back in our chair today and say, well, it's all on Adam, not on this guy. No, if you're a descendant of Adam, anyone here a descendant of Adam? I would assume you are. Yeah, I am. Then you have the sad news. You have the guilt and corruption of sin. You will die. I know that's a little morbid to consider this morning, but you, according to Psalm 51, have been conceived in sin. The scripture tells us throughout the Bible that there's no one righteous, not even one. 
So that means that this means a few things biblically, the fact that Paul's setting this up. First of all, it means that Paul clearly believed that the book of Genesis and Adam and Eve are literal, historical people. This is historical fact. This, this book of Genesis is not allegorical, made-up creation fable. Even Matthew 19, Jesus himself affirms the historical accuracy of male and female in marriage. So that's important. But secondly, this also means that you and I, as much as mom told us we were great, you and I are not inherently good. We're inherently evil. In the fourth century, a man named Pelagius came along and he essentially said Adam's sin didn't actually affect his offspring except that he set a bad example for them. Did he set a bad example? Of course. Yes and amen. But it's not just that. And so this Pelagian spirit lives on today. The same attitude that Pelagius had of, well, you're not really that bad. You're inherently good. You just set a bad example. That lives on today in the Oprahs of the world. And even in some Christians who affirm to be Christians, this attitude that says, well, in my nature, I'm actually a really good person intrinsically. But see, Pelagius was condemned as a heretic at the Council of Chalcedon in 431 AD. Why? Because passages like this and throughout the scripture that clearly affirm that sin itself, including the devastating corruption of sin and its effect, that is death, spread to all men from one man, original sin. And so this concept, the fact that we are all in Adam, is what's known as federal headship. Adam is what you could say the federal head of the entire human race. Now, this is kind of similar to our, our government. We have a very unique government. Uh, we are not actually a, a true democracy here in the United States. We are what's known as a federal republic. So history class, a federal republic is a little bit different. That's where we elect officials, and the officials will kind of make choices for the constituents by standing in the place that we want them to stand in, and they represent us, and they vote for us either for or against a piece of legislation representing our vote. And they may either do a good job, which some of them do, or a very poor job, which some of them do. But irregardless, they have been elected by us to represent us and stand in our place. Does that make sense? So in the same way, whether you meant to vote for him or not, Adam stands as our representative before God and stands up for all of humanity and is a very appropriate representative for us. Why is that appropriate? Well, because he chose to do what you and I would do if we were to stand in his place. He chose to sin. He chose to rebel. And thus, he bore the consequences that you and I are now all subject to, the guilt and corruption of sin and death. Now, I love you so much. I don't want to beef you up and tell you how awesome you are when that's not what the scripture says. I want to remind you that, yeah, you're great. You're wonderful. You won a trophy as a kid. That's awesome. But you and I, at the core, are filled with the corruption of Adam, the corruption of sin. That's bad news. And I love you enough to give you the bad news. But see, there's great news. And that is, the great news is we have a second representative. Isn't this awesome? Now, we'll get to the second Adam in a moment. But first, uh, little parentheses, Paul kind of pauses. So notice his pause, verse 13. He says, For sin indeed was in the world, before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who is a type of the one who was to come. All right, attention please, stay with me. This is, a, this is one of those Pauline, in fact, commentators said this is the section that Peter was referring to 
when Peter said, Paul is hard to follow. They're like, this is that section. This is the hardest section of Paul ever. I was very excited to look at that in my commentary study this week, realizing that we're going to cover one of the most difficult Pauline passages. But follow this train of thought. Stay with me. Before the law of Moses was given, right, there was ignorance to what it meant to obey or disobey God. Adam had one express command, which he disobeyed, but this wasn't the norm until the Mosaic covenant on Sinai. So until that covenant came, the law was given and it could exercise its role of defining and identifying sin. Sin was not yet reckoned against sinners. However, Paul says people were still dying in Adam's day, leading up to Moses' day. So they may not have had God's expressed law to transgress, but see, that proves the fact that sin and death had entered the world. So what he's saying is, you know, you don't die just for breaking an express command. Aren't you thankful for that? The minute you broke God's command at age two, right, that you just were smitten, you're just dead, right? Aren't you thankful for that? No, you die because you're a sinner. You're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. And Paul here says Adam was a type. He was a type. Notice verse 14. He was a type of the one who was to come. Now, that word type, you want to circle that. Uh, it originally meant an impression you would make by molding something, like a wax seal. You would stamp something in. Uh, it means here an event or a person that shows the shape of someone or something else. It's a type. And so Adam was a federal head who was foreshadowing another federal head. So he's the first Adam. He's similar yet very different than the second, or you could say the last Adam. One person said this. They said, first, Adam sinned as your representative, and so his rebellion against God was imputed to you. In Adam, you rebelled against God. Second, God in his mercy caused that original sin in which you participated through your representative and all your individual sins to be imputed to Jesus Christ on the cross. God imputes the righteousness of the new Adam to every member of his race. So Adam's sin was yours. All your sins are Christ's, and all Christ's righteousness is now yours in the resurrection. And then he says, lift up your heads. Isn't that wonderful? Let's look at this second section, the rain. Look at verse 15. This is now this mathematical equation or this musical composition that's lopsided. Notice with me. But, verse 15, the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, that's Adam, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Okay, so though there are two Adams, there's two representatives for all mankind, there are some big contrasts. Again, this is not a perfect parallel. This is a lopsided equation. Follow with me. One act from Adam was a fall. It was a deviation from obedience. It was a stubborn, selfish act of defiance against God. Adam saw the tree. He knew that it was desirable to eat, and it was worthy of making him wise. You could say the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. He, he deviated from obedience. That was the one act. The other act that Christ accomplished was a self-sacrificing work of redemptive love that overflowed in rich, undeserved abundance to many, many others. So you really can't compare one selfish act which brought condemnation and death and compare that to another act which completely overdoes and writes it. 
the believer finds pardon not only for the one sin that we share in with Adam, right? But the grace of God covers every sin, every sin that we've ever committed. We don't merely receive mercy, which is our sins being forgiven, but we also receive grace and favor and life and immortality and even right standing with our Father. So again, this is, a, this is an uneven parallel, but look at verses 16 and 17, and then we'll try to kind of visualize this. Verse 16 says, And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass, that's eating of the tree, the judgment brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Verse 17, For if because of one man, Adam's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Let me show you guys this on the screen. Do we, do we have that? So we kind of have two sides. So on the one side over here on the left, we have the first Adam and we have a trespass. But then we have the last Adam, we have a free gift. That trespass brought death and many, many died. But notice that Paul says in the last Adam, there is much more, not just enough grace, much more grace abounded. On the one side, it's a little bit off, but on one side, we have condemnation because of sin and death. We're condemned. We stand condemned before a holy God. Yet on the other side, we have justification. We're standing in right standing now. And death may have reigned over here, but life reigns uh, in Christ. So because of Adam's rebellion, death reigned. But because of Christ's perfect work, all that was lost in the fall was gloriously reclaimed above and beyond. It doesn't sound like you guys are happy about that this morning, but I, I love what Christopher Ash says. He says, one sin did massive damage. One grace gift in Jesus can undo all that damage. This wasn't just like a, a small act of kindness to override Adam's little mistake. No, when sin entered the world through the, or when, when death entered the world through the one sin, the one act of Christ completely undid it. Now look with me at the amount of times that Paul uses the phrase free gift. Look for it in verse 15. You'll find it twice, free gift. Look for it in verse 16. You're going to find it twice again. And it's also found once in verse 17. Free gift. What came through Adam was deserved. It was earned by all of humanity, even though you might hear, be here today. So that doesn't seem fair. If I were to stand in, pick me, coach. If I were to stand in for Adam, I would have done the right thing. As flawed as Adam is, he is the one chosen by a sovereign, perfect, good, and fair God to rightly represent all of humanity. And you, as awesome as you are, would not have had any different outcome. You might say, well, let's pick Ryan. Ryan can be the person who stands in our place. Well, then the name in our Bibles in Genesis chapter 3 and Romans chapter 5 would just say, sin entered the world through Ryan, okay? What Adam did is what all of us did. He is ultimately responsible for sin entering the world, but that doesn't mean you and I are less culpable. We, we would all love to be Pilate and just kind of wash our hands in presumed innocence, but it is our sin which caused Jesus to suffer and die. Horatius Bonar says in his hymn, "'Twas I that shed the sacred blood. I nailed him to the tree. I crucified the Christ of God. I joined the mockery." You see, we can't relegate it all on Adam. Though sin entered the world through him, we also deserve condemnation. We deserve death. We have all trespassed like our federal head. And yet, though that's true, it's deserved, 
a free gift is something you don't deserve. No one goes to a party and says, well, you earned this. No, it's a gift. I brought you, we're going to a wedding later tonight. We're going to bring a gift. We're not going to go, well, it's my marital obligation. I'm going to bring a gift for you. kind of feels that way sometimes, but I'm going to go, hey, hey, we celebrate you. Here's a free gift. Open it and enjoy it. A gift is offered freely. It's given freely. It's received freely. And according to Paul, it's a gift given through the second Adam. The second Adam who brought life and justification and redemption. And a gift must be received. You can leave a gift on your shelf. You can reject the gift. But when a gift is given, we receive it by faith. All are condemned because of Adam, but not all are saved because of Christ. As much as I wish that were the case, as much as I want to be a universalist in my heart of hearts, I want all to be saved. I want that. I desire that. But that's not the case, is it? Jesus' free gift is presented to all men, but it's not received by all men. And, and the word Paul uses here for reign, he says that death reign, the word in the Greek is basiluo, and it means to rule as a king. And so because of Adam's failure, death became king. Think about that. The empire of death has ruled since the garden. David Gusick says it this way, it is staggering to think how completely death has reigned under Adam. Everyone who is born dies. The mortality rate is 100%. No one survives. When a baby is born, it isn't a question of whether the baby will live or die. It will most certainly die. The only question is when. We think of this world as the land of the living, but it is really the land of the dying. And the billions of human bodies cast into the earth over the centuries proves this. But Paul says that the reign of life through Jesus is much more certain. The believer's reign in life through Jesus is more certain than death or taxes. You see, death may have been king since the garden, but Paul says here, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life. Now, originally when I read that, I was like, wait a minute. Verse 17 seems like Paul is teeing up an idea, but then he doesn't deliver on it. Notice verse 17. He seems to be teeing up this. It's almost like he says this. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will, you'd think he'd say, much more will life reign through the one man, Jesus Christ. Right? You're expecting him to say that. But notice what he says. He says, death reigns through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So he doesn't say, yeah, death reigned and then Christ reigns. He says, death reigned, much more will we reign. Those of us who have received the grace and the gift of righteousness, we will reign. Grace will reign. Christ will reign through us. So don't miss this. It's not merely that Christ reigns. You and I are the ones who reign uh, through the grace of God. So with that in mind, let's look at this third section, the result. So what's the result? Notice verse 18. We have another therefore. He comes back to his train of thought. As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. Verse 19. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners... So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So this is what Paul was beginning to state back in verse 12. One thing affected many. And that's really his entire thought. One act affected many. The one act of sin and rebellion affected the world. And the one act of righteousness that Christ has done uh, brings 
justification. Paul put it this way to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15. He says, for as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, here's how to understand this. In the same way that Adam failed and disobeyed in the garden, Jesus, on this side, as the last Adam, was fully pleasing to the Father. Jesus never sinned. Jesus was completely obedient and laid down his life as a propitiation to satisfy the demands of the law and also to bear the awful wrath of God when he was crucified on the cross at Calvary. And so Jesus stands as the faithful representative for all of mankind in his obedience and in his suffering and in his, you could say, his perseverance as he died in our place and then as he rose again triumphantly. So one of these two is going to be your head. You can say, I'm going to stand before God for my own sin. Yeah, but you're also going to say, one of these two stands in my place as my representative. All people are either in Adam or we're in Christ. And all who receive Christ's resurrection power will be made alive and will receive justification in life. Now, then we come to verses 20 and 21. (laughs) And I wish we could just stop at verse 19, but this is a challenging few verses. Notice with me. Paul says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, stay with me. Lots of confusion around these verses, so let's just slow down for a moment. Verse 20, how did the law come in to increase the trespass? How did that happen? Well, again, the law of Moses, as we studied Galatians, we understand the law of Moses was a parenthetical addition. It was a, it was a moment. And it revealed right and wrong, and it demonstrated an utter need for a Savior. Well, what Paul's saying is he's not saying sin entered the world when the law did. It already existed because of Adam. The law didn't, if you're into equations, it didn't add sin, but it increased it. How did it increase it? Well, it increased it because now we know how to define sin. We, we know what God expects now. I used to be a teacher, and um, my kids at the first week of school, we didn't give them the list for the classroom until after the first week. And let me just tell you, we still had merits and demerits. But after the rules of the classroom were given, the demerits went way up. Why is that? Because now the kids knew what was expected of them. They understood what the law was. And and the law itself isn't bad. The law, the commands, the rules were good. But the fact that the kids broke those rules, just it doesn't show the rules are bad. It just shows the the wickedness of the human heart. When you guys walk by a sign that says, wet paint, do not touch, what's your first inclination? I just have to just test it. I just got to make, oh, man, it is wet. Why didn't I listen to the sign? There's something within the human heart that says, don't do this. Oh, don't do what? <laughs> don't eat of that tree. Which tree? Which specific tree was I not to get near, Lord? Now, notice, though, that when Paul says this, when sin abounds, he says grace abounds all the more. You would expect verse 20 to say, where sin increased, God's judgment increased all the more. But it's not his judgment which abounds, church. It's his grace In the Greek, you could actually read this as superabounding grace. So where sin abound, grace is superabounding. So it's not like Adam's sin. Listen, 
It's not like Adam's sin produced a, I wanted to almost illustrate this today. It's not as if Adam's sin produced a cup of blackness. And then the grace of God dumped the blackness out and kind of wiped the cup down. Start from scratch now. No, church, believer, the grace of God has come and has poured over and over cup after cup after cup to cleanse us. The grace of God has so abundantly poured into our life that we have been filled with his righteousness and his favor. Where sin abounds, grace doesn't just cover it. Grace abounds all the more. What we lost in Adam has been more than regained in Christ. If you don't walk away today understanding that, uh, then you've missed the entire passage. But I want to apply this uh, text in three ways. If you're taking note, I think these are three helpful ways for us to take home these ideas. Number one, uh, to apply this, number one, there are only two categories in this world. There's in Adam and there's in Christ. You and I live in a very divisive time in history. We're going to look back and we're going to look at 2016 to 2022, and it's just a very divisive time. Everyone wants to put you in this category or that category. We are divided over language and class and education and nationality and culture and religious preference. Well, are you liberal or are you conservative? Do you watch CNN or Fox News? Hey, did you get the vaccine or not? Hey, do, do you like paper straws? Or are you one of those weirdos that like paper straws? We're put into these different categories. Well, what race are you in? That race itself is a social construct. We don't see multiple races biblically. We see one race, the human race. So we're all in one category or the other. We're all in Adam or we're in Christ. So this should diminish this whole us versus them mentality. Today, if you've not repented of your sin, your sinful lawlessness, the Bible declares that you're dead in your transgressions and you'll be separated from God for eternity. You are only in Adam and you're lumped into all of humanity. But if today you would repent, you would turn from your sin, you would mortify it, put it to death, that you would acknowledge Jesus Christ and the work that he completed on your behalf on the cross, he rose again for your redemption, then you're, you experience a change in status from in Adam to now you're a part of the redeemed humanity. You're now in Christ. Now, Paul put it so succinctly in 2 Corinthians, specifically in verse 17 where he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's who we are now. And so we're all in one of two categories. But secondly, the word that best marks the identity of a Christian, the best word to define your identity is grace. You see, the word that marks our identity is no longer sinner. That was before Christ, but now it's saint. So even though we do sin, on the one hand, we need to do our part to war against the Pelagian spirit we, we never settle for some unbiblical notion that, man, I'm just a good person in my nature, and that's why God saved me, because I'm just, he, he needed one of those good-looking young guys for the kingdom. So I'm one of those guys. No, it's, we have to war against that. We have to fight that, because in our sinful nature, we're constantly justifying ourselves and, and seeking to make the case for our own rightness or goodness or worth. We're always having that inner attorney coming out to tell, well, I didn't do that bad of a thing. I'm kind of good. But see, on the other hand, listen, on the other hand, we don't stay in a place where we walk around in gloom and defeat and just go, well, you know, I'm a worm, I'm nothing. Well, yeah, you are, but God, Christ has redeemed you. And so we'll see next week that understanding who we are radically changes how we live. We're no longer in Adam only. 
which means we no longer have to live in bondage or in death. We can live in life, in victory, and in righteousness. So our sinful and corrupted state before Christ is the exact thing which makes the gospel so amazingly sweet. Right? Isn't it? That is what makes grace so ridiculously glorious. I'm not a good person who's deserving of it. I'm a wretch, and yet God's grace has plunged down into the depths of depravity and went to scoop out the darkest, deepest, most desperate sinner. And that was me, by the way. I win. And, and God has brought me by his grace from death to new life. There's a, a hymn we sing here, one of my favorites, The Love of God. The Love of God sings about this. It says, God's love so sure shall still endure, all measureless and strong, redeeming grace to Adam's race, the saints and angels' song. Superabundant grace. Does that describe you today? Superabundant grace. I think some Christians would be described as superabundant jerks. <laughs> superabundant jerks for Jesus. And that's about as attractive as nails on a chalkboard. So listen, superabundant grace in my life means I am utterly dependent upon Christ as the source of my hope, my joy, my recreation, my purpose, and my fulfillment. Superabundant grace in my life doesn't mean I wink at sin, not for a minute. Verse 21 says grace reigns through righteousness. So when superabundant grace marks my life and I'm in Christ now, then I'm, I'm ever more seeing my sinfulness and realizing I desperately need a Savior. I'm submitted to Jesus and I'm surrendered to the Holy Spirit who's increasingly dominating my actions, my thoughts, my conscience. And we'll see that in the coming passages in chapter 6. So to be marked by superabundant grace means the more I grow in the Lord, the more I'm growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. I, I am frustrated by Christians who are knowledgeable of God's word, they're knowledgeable of doctrine, but they're crusty and angry and critical and toxic. As if Christian maturity, well, I'm going to grow in Christ. So Christian maturity means being less and less happy about life and less and less uh, joyful. Well, when my identity is superabundant grace, then I imagine my life is marked by a contagious joy, by a life of submission, even in suffering, by a sweet temperament that draws a sinner close and pleads them the merit of Christ's blood. When I'm mistreated, I reflex with love and truth and kindness, not snarky sarcasm, not disdain for people who mistreat or oppose us. If I'm in Christ, that means grace is reigning in and through my life, like Paul says here. And it's to God's glory and for my neighbor's good. So Christian, is your life marked by superabundant grace? Well, that brings us to our final point here, and that's for all of us, and that is number three, the local church, who we are together corporately. We stand as the visible outpost for the new humanity. Consider that in our very spiritual DNA is superabundant grace. So we're not merely a group of random people who all believe the same stuff and we all happen to like Chick-fil-A. That is not our identity. No, we are, you could say, the visible embassy of God's kingdom that heralds to the world what the new humanity looks like. So listen, your pastors and your, the members of this congregation reject this whole selfish, consumeristic, comfortable lifestyle that stays inclusive and self-centered and, and says, well, I'm just going to come to church because this is what I get out of it. No, we reject that. We reject that and we say, no, let's lock shields together 
and let's advance the gospel in word and deed as a new redeemed people. That's who we are. And so when the world walks in and says, that's a peculiar thing, they stand together in a room and sing about something that happened 2,000 years ago. And these people are joyful and they're happy and they're walking out, living in a, a difficult, real life suffering situation. And yet they still come together and they're able to find hope. What is it about those peculiar people? Well, what is it? We're the new humanity. We've been redeemed. We're in Christ. And so I want us to close with a, a quote from John Stott. Will you stand with me this morning? John Stott says this, and may this be kind of a commissioning for us. He says, in our view of ultimate reality, who is occupying, you can take that off, it's too small. In our view of ultimate reality, who is occupying the throne today? Are we still living in the Old Testament with the whole scene dominated by Adam as if he remained unchallenged and Christ had never come? Or are we authentic New Testament Christians whose vision is filled with Christ crucified, risen, and reigning? Is guilt still reigning in death? Or is grace reigning in life? To be sure, sin and Satan may seem to be reigning still since many continue to bow down to them, but their reign is an illusion, a bluff, for at the cross they were decisively defeated, dethroned, and disarmed. Now Christ reigns, exalted to the Father's right hand, with all things under his feet, welcoming the nations and waiting for his remaining enemies to be made his footstool. Isn't that awesome? Christ reigns. His grace reigns in the life of each and every believer, and he reigns over this church, which is the local and visible outpost for the new humanity. This morning, let's lock shields together. Let's advance his kingdom. Let's submit to his word for his glory, for our good, and for our good pleasure. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the opportunity to be in Adam. We thank you for what Christ not only has done, but what he's undone, that we have much more uh, in Christ, that where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. Lord, we uh, glory in that truth this morning. We thank you that death itself was arrested. Death was put to death. We thank you because of the finished work of Christ rising from the dead and conquering our final enemy, that desperate foe that we could never beat in our own strength. Christ came and fulfilled the law, lived the perfect life, died under the wrath of God, and yet rose again triumphantly. Today, Lord, we thank you that death has been defeated. And so, Lord, we want to live a life that is pleasing to you, submitted to your spirit, and filled with superabundant grace. So Lord, as we close with, with singing this song, remind us of what you've done, remind us of who we are, and help us to leave with joy and with strength. It's in Christ's name we together said, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the Port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.